14. And we're going to talk tonight about how to rescue a fallen believer. How to rescue a fallen believer. The reality is if you've been in church any amount of time, you know somebody was once walking with God, but now you can't find them anymore. They were once on fire for God, once in church, maybe even serving God, maybe even preaching the gospel, standing in the pulpit, but somewhere along the way they've wandered away, they've gone back into the world. And if we'll be quite honest, uh, we just kind of let those people go. Let's just be honest, we let those people go. And we may say that we care, and we may say that we're praying, but the reality is we let them go and we don't do a whole lot about it. That's the reality. We, we, we just let people go, and we just maybe pray for a while, and we move on and go about our business. But let's look at Genesis 14, beginning at verse number 1 through verse number 16. We've got a long ways to go, and I'm going to preach fast. And try to get through it and see how far we can go tonight. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elisar, Chador, Laomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bala, that is Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Chedor Laomer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Chedor Laomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtaroth, Carnaim, the Susam, and Ham, the Emim, and Shaveh, Kiriathaim, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Malachites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in the Hazazon Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and they joined battle in the valley of Siddim with Chador Laomar, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goyim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abraham's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and of Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsmen Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. One of the ways that scripture pictures the Christian life is as a continual war. We war against our flesh. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2.11 that we're to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against our soul. 
where the world accepts sin and the desires of the flesh as normal, the Bible teaches us that the only proper response to our sin nature is to put it to death. We're to mortify the deeds of the flesh is what the Bible tells us. In fact, Jesus tells us that if our right hands offend, uh, offends us, we're to cut it off. That if our right eye offends us, we're to pluck it out. Now, he doesn't literally mean we're to cut off our right hand or pluck out our right eye, but he's saying that we need to get serious about sin. We need to get serious about dealing with sin in our life. In other words, we have to fight to be holy. We have to fight to maintain purity. We have to fight to maintain, to live a righteous and holy life. And that includes our outward actions, but also our inward desires. We're in a constant battle against flesh, but we also war against the world. The world is constantly trying to conform us into its image. It wants us to think like it, dress like it, worship like it, and live like it in every way that it can. But the scripture tells us that friendship with the world is enmity with God. And the Bible also tells us that he who is a friend with the world becomes an enemy of God. That's why instead of being conformed to the world, the Bible tells us that we need to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. We need to daily intake the word into our lives so that we won't be conformed to this world, but so we can be different and transform your word. Have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. How can a young man cleanse his way by taking heed to the word of God? You see the reason people have a sin problem in the church is because they have a lack of word in their life. If we want to overcome the flesh, if we want to overcome the world, if we want to overcome Satan, it's going to happen when we have the word of God in our life. But not only are we at war against the flesh and at war against the world, we are at war against the devil. Ephesians 6 and 12 says we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. You see, our battle is not against each other. Our battle is not against the church up the road or down the road. We're not in competition against other people of denominations. Our battle is Satan and his demonic forces. Our enemy fights against all that is good and just and righteous and holy. He comes to tempt. He comes to distract. He comes to oppress. And he comes to even capture believers. In fact, Jesus tells us in John 10 that the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Hear me. We have an enemy that is real. We have an enemy that wants to destroy your soul. We have an enemy that wants to take you out. We have an enemy that wants to do everything he can to keep us from making heaven our home. He wants to destroy us tonight. We're fighting against the devil. He's not make-believe. It's not something we do to scare our children and keep them in line. He's not out there with a pitchfork and red horns on his head and a ponytail, but he is very real. And even though tonight it is Halloween and people want to throw out candy and little kids want to dress up, listen, it is a demonic night and demonic practices take place because there is a spiritual world and there there is spiritual darkness that we are fighting against every day of our lives. You see, we've got to fight against Satan. And that means we've got to put on the whole armor of God. We've got to make use of the equipment that God has made available to us. 
Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 3 and 4. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. Listen, you can't fight against the devil with a shotgun and a switchblade. You can't go out to him and put up your fist and think you're going to box with the devil. You can't fight him that way. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they have divine power to destroy strongholds. Amen? We can take captive every thought that is disobedient to Christ. Why? Because we're not waging war according to the flesh. James tells us this, James 4, 7, Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Can I tell you, if you want the power to resist, it comes first from submitting to God. Amen? The power to resist the devil comes first from submitting yourself to God. You see, people who want to go around and say the devil's always on my back and the devil's always fighting me and the devil's always getting the best of me and I can't seem to walk in victory. Can I tell you what the problem is? It's most likely that you're not submitting yourself to God. You're living according to the flesh. You're doing things your own way and you're not walking under submission to God. The strength to resist comes from our ability to yield to God. And when you put yourself under His authority, He gives you the strength and power to resist the devil. And it says He will flee from you. It didn't say He might flee. It says if you will resist Him, if you will withstand Him, He will flee from you. That's encouraging to me. It ought to be encouraging to you. That when the devil comes knocking on your door, you can resist him, you can withstand him, and he will flee. Amen. That when the devil comes in and tries to raise things up against you, you can say, talk to the hand devil. Not today. You're not going to take my joy. You're not going to take my peace. Not today, devil. And you can resist him, and he will flee. But not only do we war against the flesh, the world, and the devil, we're also to war to save those who've fallen captain to the temptations of each. In other words, we're to fight to rescue those that have fallen. We're to fight to rescue those that have been wounded in battle. This was the ministry of Jesus. In Luke chapter 15, he compares himself to a woman who loses a coin and cleans the entire house to find it. He also compares himself to a shepherd who leaves the 99 and goes looking for the one who went astray. Jesus was involved in rescuing the lost and rescuing the fallen and it should be our ministry in the church today. As believers, we need to fight to save those who have gone astray. As followers of Christ, it should be our responsibility to fight for our family it should be our responsibility to fight for believers who were once in our pews and are no longer here. We have a responsibility to fight for people that have wandered back into the world. 
James chapter 5 verse 19 and 20 says it this way, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. I believe James is clearly referring to a professed Christian rescuing them from death. Notice he refers to the audience as brothers. And he says, if you should wander from the truth, this is a ministry that all of us should be a part of in some way. So let's go back to Genesis 14. Now here's what we find in Genesis 14. We see that Lot, the nephew of Abraham, he was captured by an army of four kings from the east. The four kings of the east were at war with five kings near the Dead Sea, which included Sodom. When they conquered Sodom, they took Lot captive, and Abraham went to save him. Now here's the thing about Lot and his story. It's a sad one. But yet it's a part of Scripture, and I'm glad that it's there, because even though it's a sad one, it can also be an encouraging one. In fact, it's the story of a lot of people in churches that, who are saved, but sometimes begin to live a worldly life. Let's just be honest. There are some people that are saved, but they begin to live carnal lives. They begin to live worldly lives. I can't explain it. A carnal Christian, I don't understand it, but that's what we see in Lot. As I mentioned last week, you wouldn't know that Lot was a righteous man had it not been for the Bible telling you that Lot was a righteous man. Amen. In Genesis 12, Lot went down to Egypt with Abraham, and while he was there, he got a taste of the world, and he loved it. In Genesis 13, he lifts his eyes to look at Sodom, which was known for its wickedness, and the text says that to him it looked like a well-watered plain in Egypt. Lot had gotten a taste of the world in its wealth and was now ready to leave the land of God's blessing for the Lord of the world. In other words, when you find Lot first making his choice to go to the well-watered plain of Jordan, he pitched his tent on the outside of Sodom. But as I mentioned last week, before his story is over, he is inside of Sodom. Sitting in the gate, he's on the town council. His story, his life changed because the world had a hold on his life. In Genesis 14, he's moved into the land to gain the wealth of it and then became a slave because of his decision. Just as I said last week, I want to remind you again this week that sin will have consequences. That our choices will determine our destiny. That decisions today will determine our tomorrow. Amen? That's why we have to be careful to seek God and pray and ask God, what should I do with my life? Because if we make the wrong decision today, we may find ourselves in a Sodom tomorrow. Here's what Warren Wiersbe said, If you identify with the world and expect to suffer what the world suffers, Lot's capture was God's way of disciplining him and reminding him that he had no business living in Sodom. Can I just say that when you begin to do things your way and go your way, God will find you and God will have a way of disciplining you. And Lot becoming a prisoner of war was God's way of saying, Lot, you should have never gone to Sodom. In our text, we see Abraham, the father of all who will leave, save Lot. And that has to be our ministry of will. So the question we've got to answer is simply this. How do we rescue a fallen brother or sister? I want to give you four principles from the passage about rescuing fallen believers. Number one. To rescue a fallen believer, we must be separate from the world and sin. To rescue a fallen believer, we must be separate from the world and sin. This isn't in my notes, but 
And I, and I may reference it as we get into this a little more, but here's the thing. If you're in the world, if you're in the mess, you can't help people get out of the mess. If you're in the pig pen, you can't help somebody else get out of the pig pen. Right? If you're stuck yourself, you can't help somebody else get unstuck. If you're addicted, you can't help somebody else who's addicted. Now, if you've been delivered from your addiction and you know what it's like to have been there, God can use you to help somebody else going through it. But if you're still shooting up right beside of them, (laughs) you can't help them. Amen? If you're still throwing the bottle back right beside of them, you, you, you can't help them. There has to be a difference between us and the world if we want to help people get out of the world. Amen? One of the qualities that is necessary for us to perform the ministry of restoration and rescue to fallen brothers and sisters is that we have to live a life of separation. Because Abraham wasn't in Sodom and not captive, he could seek to rescue Lot. Now we've got to remember this about Abraham. Even though he resided in Canaan, which was a pagan land, among pagan people, he didn't live like a Canaanite. He lived a separate lifestyle. We see this in several ways. First of all, when Abraham entered Canaan, he built an altar to God. Even though he was living among pagan people, he built an altar to worship the one true God. In other words, he was in the world, but he was not of the world. He probably got right out there amongst the pagan people, among the pagan gods, and he built an altar, and he went, and he lifted his hands, and he worshipped the one true God. We also see Abraham's separation and how he chose to live. Notice this, he never built a home in the land, but rather chose to spend his entire life living in a tent. In other words, he never settled down, but he was looking for his eternal city. He was looking for his eternal home. He was looking for a city whose builder and maker was God. He was looking for heaven. Can I remind you that the Bible tells us that we're pilgrims? That we're just passing through. That this world is not our home. That once you believed in Jesus, that now we are citizens of heaven. The reality can be seen in Abraham's life that he never settled down. He never put temper, he never put down permanent stakes, but he lived in a tent day after day after day. You see, Lot settled down and built a home in Sodom, but Abraham continued to live like a pilgrim, even in the land of of promise because he knew there was somewhere so much better for him to go. Finally, we also see Abraham's separation in the title given to him. You'll notice in verse 13, he's called the Hebrew. Hebrew means the outsider, the person with no secure place in society. This probably represents the way he was viewed by the Canaanites. He was different and everybody knew it. You see, we're called to be good citizens and we're called to help society become better. And I believe if you want to vote, you want to go vote. If you, if, you, if you feel obliged to do that, then go vote and do what you can to try to be better citizens and better society. And I believe that we're supposed to be salt and we're supposed to be light. But listen, at the end of the day, we're supposed to be different. Amen? Amen? At the end of the day, we're supposed to be different. We're to be set apart and we're to practice holy living. 
Amen. But sadly, the world often can't see any difference between us and them. That's the reality. We often use the same language they do, listen to the same music they listen to, watch the same stuff on TV they watch, have the same goals, have the same worldview. And they can't see any change in us whatsoever. And then we wonder why people don't want to come to church and why people don't want to listen to us. It's because they see no change. They see no difference. Listen to what Paul wrote to the Corinthians, which was a church that struggled with worldliness. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14, 15. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? Christians that are yoked with the world cannot work effectively for God. If you are unequally yoked with the world, you will be unprofitable to God and His kingdom. Abraham was known as the Hebrew. He was an outsider. He was different. He was separated from the world. In the world, but not of the world. And here's what I want you to understand tonight. You don't have to look like the world to win the world. Amen. It's only by being different that you can win the world or restore Christians that have fallen into sin. It's only by being different that we make a difference. And I'm not talking about being weird and strange and odd. I'm talking about being different. I'm talking about... When you say standing out, sometimes that refers to being weird. But I'm talking about standing out as just simply being different. That they look at us and they know that there's something different about those people. That they looked at Peter and John and said they're ignorant, they're unlearned, but they've been with Jesus. There's something different about them. That's what people should see when they look at us. There's something different about them. They don't talk like I talk. Their attitude's different than my attitude. They don't get upset and lose their cool like I do. There should be something different. We're to be holy because God is holy. Let me just say this. You shouldn't be holy just because God's Word says be holy. You should be holy because God is holy. That's what it comes down to. And listen, I'm not talking about perfection. Because we'll never be there this side of heaven. But by the help of God and the help of the Holy Spirit, we can be different. And as I said, that's the only way to make a difference, is being different. If you want to change the flavor of your food, you have to put something different on it. If you want to sweeten your tea, you've got to put something different in it. You can't put the same stuff in it, because it's going to stay the same. You've got to put something different in it. If you want to make the world a different place, it's going to take some different people. It's going to take some difference in us. Amen? We must be separate if we're going to reach people that have fallen and reach people that are lost. But secondly, if we're going to rescue a fallen believer, we must be motivated by love. 
after hearing the bad news, why does Abraham go on a rescue mission? Listen, he's living his life. He's not being bothered. Everything's peaceful for him. So why would he go rescue his nephew? It had to be love. It had to be. It had to be that he cared for Lot. Verse 14 tells us that Lot was his kinsman. Lot was his relative. Lot was his brother. Abraham basically raised Lot for many years after the death of Lot's father. So Abraham, he's willing to go and confront four armies with only a couple hundred men. Why? Love. This is the very reason that we must go after those that have fallen into sin. We go because we love them. John 13, 34. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. How did Christ love His disciples? He loved them so much, He loved us so much, that He left the comfort and wealth of heaven to come to earth and die in order to save man from sin. You see, Abraham in this passage, he is a type of Christ. He risked death to save his relative over 2,000 years before Christ came to earth to do the same. And this is the same way that Christ has called, uh, caused, uh, called us to love as well. We must love people in such a way that we're willing to risk everything to save them. We must be willing to be inconvenienced and interrupted in order to rescue and restore people that have fallen into sin. Can we just be honest tonight? We don't want to be inconvenienced. We don't want to be bothered. We don't want to be interrupted. We want to live our lives and we want to do our own thing. It's all about us. It's all about me, myself, and I. And just let people go do what they want to do and don't bother me. Let's just be honest. We're a selfish people. Oh, I know it's going to get quiet tonight, but let's just be honest. That's just how we are. That's why people's going to go to hell. Because we're already going. And preacher, I'm good to go. Well, what about everybody else that Jesus died for? Do you love them enough to go to them? Do you love them enough to see... Them saved. And the people that are saved that have fallen back into sin, do you love them enough to go to them and confront them about their sin and try to see them? Do you love them enough? We should. Why is it that we don't reach out to people called in sin? What keeps us? Let me give you some reasons. Number one, some won't reach out because of pride. Some won't reach out because of pride. Here's what some people say. It serves them right. They get in what's coming to them. But can I tell you, if you have that kind of attitude, you forgot where God brought you from. Pride keeps us from reaching out. Because listen, God could have looked over you and just let you go on your way. Secondly, some won't reach out because of apathy. Just being comfortable. 
Abraham was safe at Canaan. He was 120 miles away from the battle. He didn't have to get involved. But he heard Lot had become a prisoner of war. And love motivated him to get involved. But here's the thing. Think about Jesus. He was safe and protected in heaven. And he left the splendors and glories of heaven to come down to this earth. So that we could be saved. He came and got spat upon and beat so severely that he was unrecognizable. So that we could be saved. He got uncomfortable for us. Just imagine had he stayed comfortable and said, just let them all go to hell. It's easy to be apathetic if it doesn't affect us. Amen. Thirdly, some won't reach out because of sin in their own lives. A common reason that many don't reach out is because they have compromise in their own lives. If they tried to help someone called in sin, they would feel hypocritical. And they might be rebuked by those they were trying to help. And so Satan, he he condemns them and keeps them from reaching out to others. But fourthly, ultimately the main reason we don't reach out is because we don't love as we should. That's that's what it comes down to when the rubber meets the road. But we don't love as we should. Love compelled Abraham to go and save his relative. Love for God, love for his, his nephew Lot compelled him to go and risk his own life to save him. This week in preparing this, God just began to deal with me. God began to convict me. Do I love people enough to fight for them? Do I love my family enough to fight for them? See, the reality is I've got three kids that I don't want to end up in hell. Do I love them enough to fight for them? God convicted me this week about how I pray for my children because I don't pray enough. And if we'll all be honest, we don't pray for our family enough. We don't fight enough. Amen? We don't fight enough. And we can sit there and say we love, but if we love, we'd fight if, if we loved, we'd have tear stains on our carpet where we've wept over them and cried out their name to God. If we loved, we'd push the plate back and say, I'm not going to eat until I see their life changed. And I, I, I know we might not be able to go on 40 day fast and 100 day fast, but here's the thing. It might just be giving up your coffee every morning. It might just be giving up a lunch every day, but say, I'm just going to do something until I see a change in their life, until God breaks through, until God brings conviction. You see, you see, love will motivate you to do something. Love is not just a saying. Love is a choice to respond. Love is motivated by action. Let us not just love in word and tongue, but in deed.
It's real easy to say, I love you. But real love is when I sacrifice and do something for you. God demonstrated His love while we were yet sinners and that Christ died for us. He didn't just say it, He showed it. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.14, Christ's love compels us. He served because He was compelled by the love of Christ to serve. You see, we should be compelled by the love of Christ to serve. Let's move on. Number three, to rescue a fallen believer, we must be spiritually prepared. We must be spiritually prepared. Number three, to be rescue a fallen believer, we must be spiritually prepared. The text tells us that Abraham led 318 trained men from his household into battle. Even though he was a peaceful man, he knew that the time would come when he needed to go to war, so he had trained his men before the enemy ever hit. Let me just say something. You have to be prepared before the enemy ever shows up. You, know, you can't wait until the enemy comes knocking on your door to get ready for battle. You can't wait until the enemy shows up to think, well, I'm going to put on my armor now. You've got to be ready at all times to fight. You, you have to be in the Word. You have to be in prayer without ceasing so that you can be ready for battle at all times. You have to be prepared. But these men that he had in his house, they were like weapons in the hand of Abraham. They were trained and ready to die for the master they loved. And if we're going to rescue those that have fallen into sin, we've got to also be prepared. We've got to be spiritually trained. Galatians 6 verse 1 says this, Brothers, if anyone is called in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. Paul said that those who are spiritual must be the primary ones that go after someone called in sin. In other words, he says that the untrained aren't ready to go into dark territory and rescue someone called in sin. In other words, everybody shouldn't be involved in restoration. That's what he's saying. Everybody shouldn't be... uh, I would love to say that Everybody in the church ought to go out and try to rescue people that have fallen into sin and fallen back into the world. But here's the thing. Everybody in the church isn't ready to go out there. Because some people's puffed up with pride and you'd do more damage than you would do good. So how do we get trained to do this ministry? Number one, the spiritually trained believer lives a holy life. Because this believer has learned how to conquer his own sin... He can help others called in sin. 
He, he, he does battle with his anger, depression, insecurity, and lust, and has learned how to gain victory. It doesn't mean that he's perfect, but he has learned how to do battle with the own sin in his life. Again, he doesn't get everything right himself. He recognizes his own weakness though and he knows how to conquer it. That's where some people mess up. They can't recognize their own weakness and they don't know how to overcome their own struggle and they're not ready to help somebody else. Amen? Secondly, the spiritually trained believer abides in the Word of God. 1 John 2.14 I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. It's because the word of God abides in these young men that they can defeat the evil one. I said this earlier that if we're going to overcome the flesh, if we're going to overcome the world, if we're going to overcome the devil, it's because of the word of God in our life. Your word have I hid my heart that I might not sin again. Against you. Well, you see, when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, each time he used the word of God against Satan, Satan would come at him and say, Hey, turn these stones to bread. And he would say, It's written. He took him in the temple and said, Hey, cast yourself down, and the angels will bear you up. And he said, It is written. Each time he responded back with the word of God. And if we're going to minister to people who stuck in sin, we've got to use the Word of God. Listen, we, we can't come up with our own ideas. We can't come up with modern man's philosophy. We've got to use the Word of God to rescue people out of sin. Amen? That's why as best I can, I, I, I study and I come to preach this book. Because this is what's going to do the work in people's lives. He said, my word will not return void, but it will accomplish what I send it to accomplish. In fact, I believe God can send his word and he bring healing. I believe while the word is being preached, people can be filled with the Holy Ghost. I believe while the word is being preached, people can be convicted of sin and people can be converted and lives can be changed. Listen, I don't have to give an altar call if the word of God's being preached right there in their seat. People can be changed and people can be converted and the word of God works when the word is being declared and preached and proclaimed. The power is in the word. You see, I I could stand up here on a Sunday morning and I could just begin to open up this book right here and begin to read without coming up with nice points. And this word right here begin to do its work. Because there's power in the Word. It's powerful. The Word of God is quick and active. Sharper than a two-edged sword. That's why Paul told Timothy, preach the Word. That's why I, at times I, I hear comments and things like that and it, it sometimes things agitate me. And sometimes I hear people preach sermons and I, I, I listen to some things and I'm just like, where, 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 where's the Word? Where's the Bible? 
talk for 45 minutes. It's like, where, where's, where's the Bible? Sounds like a self-help motivational speech. It's like, where's the Bible? The power's in the Word. 2 Timothy 3, verse 16, 17, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching. Notice that. All Scripture. Genesis to Revelation. All the begots, the book of Numbers, yeah, everything, all Scripture is breathed out by God. It's there because God wanted it to be there. And it's profitable, it's useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. It's through the Word of God that we teach people that have fallen into sin what is right and what is wrong. Now here's the thing, most people that fall into sin, they know right from wrong. But we expose sin in their life when we teach and open up this book. Amen? And it's by rebuking that we confront those in rebellion. And now, that's a part that we don't want to do. That's a part that we don't want to have to do with people. But, but here's the thing. When you begin to open up this book and begin to teach this book and show people what this book says, it's going to do some rebuking and reproving in their life. It's, it's through the, this book, it's through Scripture that we give correction. You begin to put things back in alignment. Listen, if you've ever broken a bone, you've got to have it corrected. You've got to have it put back in alignment so it can be healed. And if it's ever, if it, let's just say this, if you break it on Friday and the doctor can't see you till Monday and it ever shifts and he has to reset it, he's got to correct it. He's got to get it back in alignment so that it can heal properly. And that's essentially what we do with the Word. We, we, we correct and we set things back in place so that things can be Healed properly. Correcting is a word of restoring something in its proper position. After they receive correction through the Word of God, we we train them on how to live righteously. In other words, it's not enough to expose what's wrong and tell them what's right. You've got to train them. Let Let me give you the word, discipleship. And that is something that many churches fail to do. We can get people in, evangelize them, and see them say, but we never make disciples. And you want to know why we have to restore people? Because we never train them how to live. Jesus said, go make disciples. He didn't say just go get people saved, did he? He said go make disciples. Go make followers of me. We're to duplicate ourselves over and over and over and over and over again. Or, let me say this, Christ in us. We're supposed to be reproducing that in other people. But here's the thing. We can't share the Word of God with anybody else if we don't know the Word. 1 Peter 2.2 Like newborn infants, like newborn babies, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. 
Do you have to teach a newborn baby how to suck on a bottle? You put it near their mouth when they're hungry. They crave it, don't they? Unless there is something physically wrong inside of them. They have an appetite and when they get hungry, they're going to let you know. And they crave it. Amen. And he says, like a newborn infant, like a newborn baby, you should long for the pure spiritual milk. In other words, he said, you should long for the Word of God so that you can grow up in your salvation. And here's the thing, in the Greek language, that word grow, it is passive. Literally, it can read this way, so that it may grow you. He says, you need to long for the Word, you need to long for the spiritual milk so that it can grow you. The Word does all the work. Think about it. You've got to get into the Word until the Word gets into you. And when the Word gets into you, the Word will do the work. Let me just say this. People that have struggled with problems, addictions, habits, get into the Word until the Word of God just saturates you and the Word will do the work. The Word will break the habit. The Word will break the addiction. The Word will break the bondage. If you'll just get into the Word until the Word just gets so saturated into you until where you open your mouth and the Word just starts coming out, it'll work. Amen. I'm telling you that, 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 that your word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. That's our problem. We, 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 we just don't have enough of the word inside of us. And again, I'm telling you, God's dealing with me and convicting with me. God, He put more of the Word in your life. And you might say, preacher, you, you, you preach two times a week. You, you talk for nearly two hours, two times a week and, and all of this. How can you not have enough Word? I'm telling you, God's saying, Scott, He put more of the Word in your life because I'm telling you, if things keep going the way that they're going right now in the United States of America and in our world, there may come a day where we can't hold a physical copy of God's Word in our hand. And you know the Word you're going to have is what you put on the inside of you I'm telling you now church you better hide the word of God in your life you better put it in your heart you better know it a spiritually trained believer someone who longs for the word abides in the word and I believe Jesus said if you abide in my word you are my disciples indeed Even the Gospel of John, he said that. I got to move on. Number three, the spiritually trained believer trusts God. In other words, he's a person of faith. Why would these men in Abraham's house go out to battle? I believe they saw the faith of Abraham. And they had faith themselves. They believed God would give them victory. 
And I believe a spiritually trained believer is also a person of great faith in God. In other words, they aren't counting on their knowledge of the Bible. They aren't counting on their wisdom. They aren't counting on their philosophy. They're trusting God. You see, only God can open the eyes of the blind and confused. Only God can set the captive free. Only God can break up the hard heart. Only God can produce the change in a person's life that has to take place. Amen? But here's the thing. A person of faith does the work, but they trust God for the results. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 3, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. That's what you do. You have faith, but you still do the work, but you leave the results to God. Number four, the spiritually trained believer is a person of prayer. When Paul taught about putting on the armor of God in spiritual warfare, he closes with an exhortation about prayer, Ephesians 6, 18. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. He says, pray in the Spirit on all occasions and to always keep on praying for all the saints. Spiritual warfare is done in the atmosphere of prayer. The spiritually trained person, believer, is a person living in prayer. You want to fight the battle? Fight on your knees. Fight on your knees. Amen. So let me ask you, are you one of the spiritual people who are called to go after others who have fallen? Sad thing is there's very few people that are trained in the church to be involved in restoration. Very few people are willing to train themselves and prepare themselves to be in the ministry of restoration and rescuing people that are fallen. Like soldiers preparing for war, it takes hard work. It also takes faithfulness. Are you willing to prepare for a lifetime of rescuing other believers? That's what I want us to be about, rescuing people that are lost, rescuing people that have fallen into sin. Let me move on. Let me give you this last final point. To rescue a fallen brother or believer, we must use wisdom. Got to use wisdom. Abraham, he used wisdom to defeat these four armies. We see it several ways. He attacks at night while they were resting. He divides his men up to surround the camp and he pursues them for a great distance which would have kept them from regathering their forces for a counterattack. Let me give you just a couple things here on how we can use wisdom. Number one, we use wisdom by seeking the counsel of other mature saints. Proverbs eleven fourteen: For lack of guidance, a nation falls, but victory is won through many advisors. That's war terminology. Every nation has a department of defense. It is there that the generals, other advisors, and the president gather to make wise wartime decisions. Scripture says many advisors make victory. Sure. We've got to surround ourselves with wise people. But secondly, we use wisdom by discerning who might be most effective in restoring a person in sin. Let me just say that sometimes the pastor may not be always be the best one to restore the person. I know in most churches, people think that the pastor is the guy who fixes everything. But that's not always the case. That's why this book refers to the church or the people of God as the body 
of Christ. That you got hands and feet and all of these parts of the body because they all have a different function. They all have a different role. And it does lay out a particular role that a pastor has to equip the body for the work of ministry. Is that to say that I would never want to be involved in restoring? No, that's not what I'm saying. But here's the I may not always be the best one to do the job. Sometimes it might be another brother or another sister that can do it better than me. And we have to be discerning. We have to say, God, who would be the best one that could reach them? Because if you put the wrong person there instead of reaching them, you could push them away. Amen? And so that's where we want wisdom. And that's where we want to go to God and say, God, what what do we need to do? And that's where we go back to the the counselor. Okay, God, we, we, we need some advice. We need some discernment in knowing what to do. But thirdly, we use wisdom by speaking the truth in love. Ephesians 4.15 says, Rather speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ. You see, the manner of this ministry is important. You see, we would all agree tonight that truth is important. We need truth. And people need to hear the truth. But here's the thing. If you only have truth, you can hurt people and push them away. What you're saying might be right. What you're saying might be true. But if it's presented the wrong way, it can be destructive. Truth the wrong way can be a stumbling block. What did Paul tell us? That the preaching of the cross is foolishness. And so when you're trying to rescue people, you you need to speak the truth, but you need to speak the truth in love. You can't have a sour attitude and a bad attitude. And you can't be mean and hateful. Proverbs 15.1 A soft answer turns away wrath. But harsh words stir up anger. Our manner of ministry is very important. We have to have truth, but it must be presented in a loving manner. Let me close by giving you one last thing. I want you to write this down. and I want you to think about this. You can put this in your notes section. We must act on principle, not results, to rescue a fallen believer. We must act on principle, not results, to rescue a fallen believer. Let me explain and we're going to close. In verse 16 we read that Abraham brought back Lot and all his possessions. But here's the question. Where did he bring him back to? To Sodom. Here's the thing. Lot didn't learn a thing. He wasn't changed by the entire experience he went through. He doesn't say one word of thank you to Abraham and he doesn't offer any word of repentance. In spite of what just happened, in spite of what he just went through, he goes back to Sodom and continues his downward spiral into sin.
You may have heard of Christians called in sin. You may have known of people called in sin. And you may be thinking, why should I even try to help them? It's not going to do any good. But let me give you three reasons as I close why you should help them anyways. Number one, Christian love demands it. Regardless of what they do after you seek to rescue them, because you love them, it demands that we go after them. Amen? If you love someone, you can't just sit around while they destroy themselves in sin. But secondly, we don't know the future, so we can't assume that they're going to fall again. Maybe this time they'll learn to walk with God. So we go after them. But thirdly, there may come a day you need rescuing yourself. And so we need to go after people. Because there may come a day when I fall and I need somebody to help me get up. There may come a day you fall and you need somebody to help you get up. And that's why we go after people. And that's why we seek to restore them. Sadly, this ministry, it's missing in most churches. As I said earlier, we give up too easily on people. But I want to say to us tonight that God cares about people. People matter to Him. And because they matter to Him, they should matter to us. We need to fight for people. We need to go to war for people. We shouldn't leave our fallen and our wounded behind. We need to fight to see them rescued and restored. May God give us compassion. May the Lord give us a heart that loves people that have fallen by the wayside. And may we seek to rescue them. Would you stand with me?